If you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter uh, 12. We'll open up and read, uh, reread some scripture that we finished off with last week, and then we'll get into chapter 13 tonight. Uh, we're going to be dealing with uh, a, a, a Another uh, challenging text, Romans 12 is very uh, personal in terms of it challenges us who we are as people. 13 is going to deal with us, uh, particularly with our citizenship and our function in society. Uh, so I think that uh, we, we, we've called this series, the study Crossroads, uh, as in uh, obviously a play on the word cross is in the cross is the road to God and, and, and into his kingdom. Uh, but a crossroads, an intersection is where you have to make a decision that taking the next step might cost you, taking the next step might change uh, a lot about your life. But just as much as it is a crossroads for the sinner uh, to make that choice for Christ, uh, Romans 12 and 13 are a crossroads for every one of us as Christians, uh, for us to be obedient, to follow God uh, in that step that he wants us to take. Uh, it is crucial uh, that we uh, soberly consider his word for us and that we follow uh, what this passage is all about because it is the next step for every Christian to take in terms of sanctification. We are all called to be sanctified in Christ. Sanctified means set apart. Uh, it means to be made whole, to be made more complete. Uh, every one of us as Christians being saved, we are uh, in the process of being sanctified, yet our obedience is crucial. And as we looked at last week in Romans 12, uh, bringing ourselves before God as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, sacrifice uh, is important so that God might take and transform our lives. So as we move into Romans 13, it's important that we keep Romans 12 fresh on our minds. Uh, specifically, it's important uh, that we maintain what we learned about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is that transformed and that renewed mind. He said in chapter 12, verse number one, if we can go to the first slide, uh, that he says that your mind would be transformed and renewed, that you would be living sacrifices. And that is the goal. That is the invitation that we're given in the first couple of verses. Now, otherwise, uh, everything that we talk about from Romans 12 and Romans 13 uh, will be completely, will sound completely unreasonable and will be impossible. That if our minds are not transformed by the Spirit of God, if our minds are not renewed by the Spirit of God and our lives are not changed in the image of Christ, uh, the, 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 the pathway God wants to take us down is impossible for us to get to. And honestly, uh, it will be undesirable for us as Christians or, or as people, we will look at this at the commandments and think, well, I don't really think that makes sense. I don't think that's something I should do or I should want to do. Uh, it is important that we go into this chapter and into this subject with a transformed and renewed mind. Uh, and that literally means that we have brought ourselves before God and that we are saying to him, Lord, have your way. Here's my heart. And, and that idea of a living sacrifice, uh, it literally means the lives that we live are sacrificial, as in we begin to put others first, put others before us. Now we covered this, but just so that we're all on the same page, uh, Romans 12 makes it clear that living for Jesus and what we should do as living for Jesus, that's not some vague pathway that we sort of all sort through privately and figure out privately. Uh, living for Jesus, as, as described by Romans 12, uh, is pretty specific uh, and, and, and it's not at all vague, it's not at all murky, it's not, a, it's not at all uh, you know, something that we uh, you know, have to feel our way around in the dark about, it's pretty specifically laid out for us. Uh, Romans 12 places us within the body of Christ and says, now go and do, now go and do for others as Christ has done for you. This is the end game for Christians that our 
calling as Christians is that we would go and do for others as Christ has done for us. That's what Romans 12 has taught us about. I want to reread verses 9 through 21. I want us to understand really clearly what is the Romans road for a Christian, what our calling is, our lifestyle, what it should look like. And again, notice that from 9 through 21, we get the picture of what Jesus was like, who Jesus was and what he was like. And I want us to hear these verses again before we move on into the next chapter. He says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless those and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we get this idea that this chapter is all about doing for others. It's all about putting others first. We get that from the very first, uh, very beginning of it. Uh, let your love be genuine. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another. Give preference to one another. And as we read throughout that, that, that passage, it becomes clear that we are becoming more and more like Jesus to the point that uh, we are not repaying evil for evil, but we're actually doing good for those who might not deserve something good done for them, just like God did for us, right? So the, the command is go and do for others as God has done for you. And in case you're wondering, does that mean, does it mean that we do for others in every way that Christ has done for us? Absolutely. Uh, as the last few verses are, for, are, are, are telling us that we should forgo revenge, choose forgiveness in the most extreme of circumstances even, that when we are prone to and apt to repay someone, we would do the opposite. Rather than repaying them, we would heap coals of fire upon their head as in we would do good for them, not evil back against them. And, and, and this is consistent with the theme of the Bible. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that when, when the Bible commands us to live godly and be, you know, follow Christ. There's always that connection with what we do for others and how we serve others. And the Bible makes it clear, living for God always involves living for others. Loving God is always associated and actually authenticated by loving others. That every time we read about loving God in the Bible, it's always followed up with that command to love others because in reality, God is most concerned with and God is most passionate about how we treat one another because it's in that that we actually become like Jesus because what have we learned in Romans chapter 12 that God has called us as sanctified Christians to love one another as Christ has loved us. So if we are going to live for God, it is directly associated with how we live for others and what we do for others. And we cannot say we love God if there is not that connection with a love for 
others. Now, Jesus at one point was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And now when you ask someone what the greatest commandment is, you're expecting a single response, right? If you come to me and say, hey, Justin, what's the most important verse in the Bible? And I turn around and give you two verses, you're going to say, well, I only asked for one. Now, that might be a little bit wrong for me to do that. If, I'm, if you ask for one, why would I give you two? But Jesus, who I think is a pretty good authority on the subject, was asked on one occasion, what is the most important commandment? And he said what the Jews expected him to say, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your might, all your strength. But the thing about loving God is, and the way the Jews understood it, is you can define loving God any way that you want to. Well, I love God because I don't do this, or I love God because I do this. But Jesus said, let me help y'all out. If you want to know what loving God looks like, this is what it looks like. He says, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Well, we didn't ask you for two, Jesus. He said, I know you didn't ask me for two, but you're not going to get one from me without the other because it's two sides of the same coin. So just so you can't walk away and think loving God is some vague, abstract idea, here is what loving God looks like. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know what loving God looks like, start loving the person next to you because that is exactly what God has called you to do. The second is like it, as in you can't have one without the other. Love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. You can't just have one. On these two commandments, hang everything, right? Law of prophets, the Old Testament, that's the Bible to the Jews. Paul says in Philippians, this is our calling as Christians. Philippians chapter two, he says, let each of you look not only on your own interests, which is what our nature is, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, as in that was the mind of Christ. Have this mind that Jesus had. What was on Jesus' mind all of the time? Doing for others. Now, we think about Jesus being this miracle worker, this wonder worker, and he was. But name one thing that Jesus did for his own self-interest. He had the power to part the water, walk on the water, turn water to wine, raise the dead. But when did Jesus ever use his divine power to serve himself? The only time he was ever even entertaining the idea was when Satan tempted him, right? Satan said, turn these rocks into bread. Jump off of this tower so that you might perform a spectacle and people would ooh and ah at you, right? Every time that Satan tempted him, Jesus said, that's not why I've come. That's not what my mission is. Yes, I have the power to do for myself, but I use my power for others. Now, you and I don't have that kind of power. We will never have that kind of power. We're just people. But could you imagine what it would be like if we did have that kind of power people imagine being rich and famous and wealthy and what do they do with that fame and that fortune? They use it for themselves. And I don't blame people if they're like that in the world. What else are you gonna do with it? Except for using it for other people. And you and I are called to live our lives no matter what means that we are at for the good of others, to seek the interest of others. Again, this is not nature. This is not what we are naturally prone to do, but this is what Christian transformation does to us and does for us. We look on the interests of others. Have this mind in you that also was in Jesus. And he goes on to give us an example or give us more explanation. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. As in Jesus was God, he is God, but on his earthly ministry, during his earthly ministry, he did not seize that power as a means for his own gain, but he emptied himself. 
He poured himself out. He, now, we pour out percentages of ourselves, don't we? Right? I'm going to give God an hour. I'm going to give God a percentage. I'm going to give God a little bit. And we feel good about that percentage we give to God because, hey, look at me. No one else is doing that. Look what I gave him. Look what Jesus did. And what is Paul calling us to do? Empty ourselves out just as Jesus did. That's what it means to be transformed. And let me just give you a warning. If there's 1% of self left in us, we will not be able to follow through where God wants to take us. That's how powerful leaven is. Remember the, 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 the phrase in the Bible, a little leaven leavens a whole lump? 1% of selfish ambition will ruin our ability and our desire even to live a transformed life. So we should not be surprised or deflect the teaching of Romans 12 when he, we, when he tells us to humble ourselves and elevate others. Romans 12 removes Christianity from the private corner and makes it impossible to ignore what Christianity is to be lived, that it's to be lived out in the public. Our devotion will always be measured by our dedication to love. And again, as much as this hurts me to say, because as a preacher, as a church, as someone who attends church, I mean, again, I, I can count how many times I've not been in church on my hands, right? As somebody who loves to attend church, as somebody who believes in tithing, as somebody who believes in doing X, Y, and Z, what God measures us by is not our attendance, not our record of giving, not our passion and worship, not how loud we are or how bold we are. None of those things impress. God or should be used to fool ourselves. Jesus said, by this, they'll know that you are mine. By this, not by how faithful you are to the building, not by how much you give, not by what you wear, not by where you go and how long you stay. By this, they'll know that you are mine if you love one another. And listen, y'all, Romans 12, the reason why it's so important, Paul is wanting us to be agents of change in our world. He's wanting us to make a difference in our world so they can, they can get a hold of what we just got a hold of in the first 11 chapters. By this, they'll know. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, y'all know the, the spiel where Paul says, if I have tongues, if I have knowledge, if I do all the greatest works, but I don't have love. What did he say? And I'll paraphrase it for you. If I have gifts, if I have knowledge, if I have works, but I have not love, I gain nothing. It's a big deal, isn't it? It's everything, isn't it? Paul says, if I have all the knowledge of all the things about God in the kingdom, in the heavens, if I can speak in the tongues of angels, if I give my body to be burned for the kingdom of God, but if I don't have love for my neighbor, I am wasting my time. Now you'd think there would be zero confusion on this subject, but hundreds of church leaders and professing followers would line up to, to, to this teaching and protest that this is not the most important thing when it comes to Christianity. This is not the most important thing when it comes to Christian living, but this is the message of the entire Bible. Some may say, well, you know, I, I thought Christianity and, and I think Christianity is really all about not sinning against God. And, and of course it is about being righteous. But righteous living has everything to do with how we treat each other and how we live in relation to one another. Think about this. When God told the Jews, do not make a graven image of me, you know why he told them that? Because they already had images of God, each other, right? 
God said, I don't want you to make an image of me because in the, in the pagan world, they always made God out of in, the image of God to be an animal or to some beast or some abstract creature. But God told the Jews, you have an image of me right in front of you because all of you are made in my image. And what are the Ten Commandments all about? How you treat each other, how you do to each other in reflection to what you believe about God. This is the message of the Bible. We're commanded to not sin so that we don't hurt each other to build up the body of Christ, doing good for each other. We're called into the body of Christ so that we may be able to build up his body. Every command has to do with how we relate to one another. And as we've seen, Jesus stayed in two places and Paul stayed in several places. God is glorified when we live in harmony, peace, and goodwill towards one another. It's not what we bring to God. That's self-righteousness, right? It's not, well, God, look what I've done for you. It's God bringing something to us and that being lived out through us. That is what it means to be a living sacrifice. And that's why Romans 12, 9 through 21 focuses so intently on our love for each other and how we treat each other and what we choose to not do to each other. This is what it means to be sanctified. Now, and again, I don't want to harp on this too long, but I think I need to talk about this a little bit more. Go and read the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I know you probably read this every night before you go to bed. If you don't, you should. Deuteronomy is actually a pretty important book when it comes to Christianity because it focuses on the people of Israel and how they treated each other. And I want to show you a few things because as we move into talking about the church within its larger society, Deuteronomy is, gonna, is a good reference point because it was talking about how the people of God would function in a world that was not thinking about God. And as the nation of Israel was getting developed, God gave them some very important principles to live by. Now, and, and I, don't, I don't mean this to, de, to, to degrade other churches and preachers, but I, I don't think, and I don't really talk about this too much myself, so this is me confessing. You don't hear this stuff preached a lot because it's so convicting and it contradicts our politics and our own agendas. And again, let me just kind of poke at, poke at us a little bit. You know why, you know, churches and evangelicals, we love hearing about certain things in the Bible that are so abstract and that are all about theories because there's, there's no black and white, hey, go and do it. We love distracting ourselves with the ethereal and with the abstract. But there are certain passages in the Bible that make it so clear what we should do that we often avoid them. And, and again, that's just kind of how it works and how our nature is, but it, it, it's a shame. Now we should, and I pray that we best make, uh, we best realize the need for transformation, the renewal of mind that Christ wants to give us. If our worldviews are similar to the worldviews of the people around us that are not Christians, then that shows us that that's not a sanctified worldview. That's not a renewed, transformed worldview. But I want to show you how the ideas of Romans 12 are not new to Romans 12, but God has been preaching these ideas since the very beginning, since he formed the nation of Israel regarding lifting others up, regarding loving each other, regarding doing for those that you might not consider doing for, the, doing for uh, you know, naturally. If you go back to Deuteronomy and you read through almost every other chapter, you get verses like this. And, and, and this is a verse where God is explaining what he is most passionate about. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 says, God executes justice for the fatherless, for the widow, 
and he loves the sojourner or the stranger or the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. So this is a statement in Deuteronomy where God says, this is what I am most passionate about. I am passionate about helping the poor and I love the one among you that you think doesn't belong there, but I have a heart for them in a way that nobody else does. Now, this is of course referring to people that were in immigrating into Israel that, that maybe weren't naturally born there. The idea is that God's heart beats for the poor and the outcast and the lowest in society. And, and in chapter 15, listen to what God commands the Jews to do. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Whatever it may be, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. You know what that unworthy thought would be? That thing in us that says, I don't need to do that. I don't need to love somebody that I have to go out of my way to, 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 be, to be near and to do for. I don't need to do that. That's not, that's not Christianity. I'm gonna pray about it, but I'm sure I already know what God's gonna tell me to do. He's gonna tell me not to do it because they don't need, they don't deserve my help. What does it say? You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him for this is the God's will and for this God will bless you. Do, do you see the, the, the message there? And, and you see that love is not just this feeling that we say we have. Love is a verb that we show and we do for others. Now, part of the tithing system in the Old Testament, uh, it wasn't just bringing money and putting it in the bank uh, or in a, in a storehouse. It was giving money to the community of God so that you could turn around and do something with that money. Not just money, it was grain, it was wheat, it was food. Deuteronomy 26 says this. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, which is the people that serve the faith community, you know, preachers in, in, in today's world. And again, I'm not just saying that because I'm up here. I'm just saying that that's because that's the correlation. Levites were the, the priest and the, 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 the workers in the temple. But notice what else the, the tithe was for. For the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow that they may eat and be filled. So do, do you get the idea that when God... When, when the Jews were gathering themselves together as a society, when they were told to love their neighbor, God said, let me show you how to love your neighbor. Do for them, give to them, help them. It's not just, oh, I'll be there for you, but hey, don't ask me for anything. It's actually go and look for ways to do for people. In the same way, God wants to sanctify us and make us present in our world where we are actually doing what we should be doing. Now, I got to say this, this is completely averse to what most people think is important when it comes to following Jesus. And it should open our eyes to what it means to be a living sacrifice and how we should renew our minds and be transformed by his will. Now, listen, I just showed you six verses from Deuteronomy. There are hundreds of verses that say the same stuff. And if you read the chapters, if you think I repeat myself a lot, Deuteronomy repeats itself every chapter which should make us think, right? If we say we love God, but we don't love being like God. You hear that? If we say we love God, but we don't like being like God or we don't love being like God, 
We need to rethink what love is and ask God to give us his heart. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm log jamming us right here, because if we can't get this and rejoice in this, we will never survive Romans 13. You hear that? If we can't get Romans 12 and obey Romans 12 and adopt this lifestyle of love one another, do good for one another, raise others up whenever they're below us. If we can't get this, Romans 13 will be completely irrelevant to us. We will read it and we will think that does not apply to me and that is completely a joke. And, and I, I don't, I'm not putting words in your mouth. That's just what we'll do. That's what I do in my flesh. Why so read this chapter and think, well, that's, that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna work. Church, let me, do, let me just ask you this. What, me included, what do we do for the people in our community that are poor, that are without the things that we have? What do we do? Nothing. Now you may be doing something I don't know about, but what does the church as a whole do for people in today's world? We do barely anything. We give a little bit of money here and there. We you know, feel bad for people, but most of the time we just judge people and say, well, they should do better and they should work harder. This is so convicting. Maybe, maybe for y'all, I don't know, but for me, it's so convicting because to preach this and to teach this, but then follow up and not do anything about it should scare us and should make us rethink what we actually believe in and what we are actually living for. Now, Romans 13 might remind us, and it is gonna remind us that we can get so distracted by this world that we lose track of what our focus is and what our mission is. Uh, as we move into Romans 13, it's gonna, Romans 13 is, is about how we function as citizens in the, in the worldly kingdoms wherein God has placed us. These subjects go together because we are tempted to ignore our Christian mission and become distracted by our kingdom building. That, that's the reason why these two are back to back. Because if we don't realize our purpose in this world, it's so easy to get distracted by the kingdoms that we want to build and the things that we think we should put our hands on. What happens when we do that is we get discouraged and we get more aggravated because we have a world working against us. Romans 13 is gonna remind us that yes, we have a world working against us, but that should not bother us. And it does, doesn't it? But it should not bother us because we must focus on what God has called us to do. You, you know what happened? Well, you know what went wrong for Israel? Israel moved into the land and they all went into their own corner. They got houses they didn't build. They enjoyed wells they didn't dig. They enjoyed fields they didn't plant. They made life about them and they did not care for one another. They did not love one another. They by all means didn't care for the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the stranger. They kicked those strangers out and they let the poor and the widowed and the fatherless just fend for themselves. And as a result, they became so focused on themselves when things didn't go well for them, them, they crossed their arms and they pouted and eventually they had no kingdom at all. If you want to know why every country, every economy is doomed to rise and fall, rise and fall, it's not because who's in office and it's not because of policies of the left or the right. The reason why every so many years countries come and countries go, it's because we must be reminded of what we are actually put on this earth for. So thank God for that roller coaster ride, if in fact we learn from it.
Church, this needs to be preached every week in every church to houses full of people convinced the main problem in the world are the sinners outside. But really, truly, honestly, the biggest hurdle in our world today is the careless, distracted church full of people inside. And I am one of those careless, distracted people. I am one of those. I have a hunch that all of us are in that category some way, shape, or form. So may God help us and forgive us and change us and may, may the rest of our time detach our grip from this world so that the urgency of our mission might become more pressing. So one last warning, if Romans 12 did not already humble us, then Romans 13 will. But if we are already humbled, we'll accept what 13 says. But if we do not go into 13 humbled before God, we will reject these commandments like someone is trying to give us the wrong kind of blood, as in we're getting a type of blood that we are not naturally able to receive. And that should all make us sit up a little bit because the blood of Jesus ought to make this easy to receive. But if we do not receive it, it may just be because we're lacking that connection with God. Coming off of chapter 12, 17 through 21, we hear this about not seeking revenge and we hear this about not fighting fire with fire, how we should not do, our, do un, things unworthy of our character, how we are to leave our enemies in the hands of God, overcome evil with good, Christian good. Now I want you to hear what Paul says to the Romans in the Roman empire, the Roman Christians, listen to what he says to them. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rules, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister for you, to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister. It's a pretty strong label to give the particular person that he's talking about. We'll talk about that in a minute. He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for your conscience' sake. Now, here's what Paul is doing. And, and we've already heard him diffuse our urge to seek our own selfish agendas for our own selfish ambition. Now he is attempting to remove the distraction and the allure of worldly power. He teaches us to see all governments, our government particularly, as placeholders serving a purpose initiated by God. Now we've referenced Daniel a lot at our services, how God raises up leaders, he raises up kingdoms, he lowers them and lowers leaders at the same time. But what Paul is calling for here specifically is what I call a cooperation of church and state. And here's the thing, the state may never cooperate. The state most likely will not cooperate. So it's up to us. It's up to us to be the cooperating ones. Now there is part of you, there's part of me that says, I will never do that. I don't wanna talk about that unless the right people are in power, of course. Paul is calling the Christians and for the church to be agents of cooperation. You can't guarantee the church, the state's gonna play ball but we must, within our means, understand our role and our function. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. So he acknowledges the elephant in the room. Yes, our generation, his and ours and everyone in between is a crooked and a twisted one. But you are placed there to be lights in the world. And I'm calling you to exist in that place without grumbling and without disputing. Church, isn't it true that some of us as Christians, we don't know how to go into a conversation with people without arguing? We don't know how to talk to people that disagree with us without disputing with them and grumbling with them. We don't know how to even have conversations with people that are not just like us without fighting with them or without inciting some argument. And of course, we can't control their side but for as far as what depends on us, a lot of us, we don't know how to talk to people that are different than us. And Paul says, you gotta learn how to do that. And you've gotta learn how to cooperate in the place that God has placed you so that your light may shine. So that for your sake of your conscience and for the sake of your witness, you may be able to reach people. Now, just a word on the governing authority of the day. The governing authority of Romans and Philippians day was a tyrant named Caesar. You've heard of him. There was one named Tiberius. There was one named Claudius. There was one named Nero. Every single one of them thought themselves to be a God and would kill anyone that did not bow before them. The Caesars ruled in the first century. They all had their own brand and flavor of evil and oppression. And Paul's command to those Christians in that government is to cooperate. Now, cooperation does not mean comply in the case of disobedience to God. As far as uh, if we are commanded to disobey God, the Bible always says, do what is right in the sight of God, regardless of what man commands you. But as far as respecting and minding the business of the greater kingdom, that's what this is about. A lot of people will look for verses to justify their irreverence and disrespect, uh, but they'll ignore these that make it very clear. Again, be subject to your authorities. Submit to your authorities. Be subject for the sake of your conscience. Now, we hear stories in the Bible of men like Moses and Daniel uh, and, and the apostle Peter who obeyed God rather than obeying man, but they always did so with a respect for the kingdoms wherein God placed them. They didn't go looking for verses to use God's name in vain to get out of doing what was right. The deeper meaning of this text is to detach us from the worldly kingdoms and trust what God is doing and rest in him. Even if the world around you is full of unrest, the whole idea is that we would have faith in the God who is sovereign over the state, even if his righteousness is nowhere to be found in the state. Do you hear me on that? Have faith in the God who is sovereign over the state. Why is Paul telling us to be subject to our governing authorities? Because God placed them in authority. He's not saying be subject to them because they're great. He's basically saying they're not so great, but God put them there. So this is the court we are playing in and God has a plan and God has a will. And we may not always understand that, but as God is building towards something greater and the place he has put you, you have faith in his sovereignty, even if the state that you're in lacks the righteousness of God. 
Defer to his rule. It's not about a battle for us to win, but trusting that God has already won that battle. Now, I want you to, the greatest example is Jesus, of course, when he was before Pilate. Maybe you, uh, we don't want to consider that example because it's so extreme, but again, Romans 12 has been all about making us like Jesus. So maybe we need that kind of extreme example. Remember, Pilate was incredulous because Jesus would not fight back. He kept goading Jesus and poking Jesus and prodding Jesus. And finally he lost it. Finally, he said, you will not speak to me. Do you not know I have the power and authority to kill you? Jesus, are you gonna sit there and have that smirk on your face knowing that I can release you or I can kill you? You're gonna play this, oh, I'm not gonna talk game. Pilate says, come on, Jesus, I know you wanna say something to me. I, I've heard your reputation, I know you're passive, I know you're, you know, you're, you're not a, a retaliatory guy, but I am about to crucify you and you're not even gonna say anything? Do you not know that this is Satan's response to you and I every single day as this world pokes and prods and tempts us? This is, this is what he says to you every day at work when somebody is getting under your last nerve. This is what he says to you in your relationships whenever you're trying your best to love one another, love one another, but somebody keeps poking and poking and poking. And he says to you, do you not know? Jesus responded. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That's the only thing he said. Pilate, as far as the authority, your authority was given to you. Whatever you do to me is above your pay grade. You may think you're making that decision, but you're not. Does that not make you kind of feel a little bit uneasy? That Jesus sat in front of the man who thought he had all the power and Jesus says to him, you would have no authority unless it was given to you. And of course, Jesus is the one that gave it to him. But what did Jesus do? He laid his power down. He deferred it to this man. And what, what happened to Jesus after this? They crucified him, right? It cost him everything. But he entrusted himself into God's hands. It cost him greatly, but was it about him? No. Romans 12 has transformed us into this image and this has taken it further. Jesus could have called legions of angels. He could have built a kingdom catering to him, but he did none of that. And it's his mind, it's his heart that sanctification is calling us to adopt. And if this seems radical, if this seems extreme, it is, it is. Romans 13 is calling us to cooperate, respect, not talk bad about those who rule us. I think the best way for Christians to regard, and, and I know I'm, I've already probably said some things that are not popular, that's okay. I may say some things in the next few minutes that you don't think I should ever, ever say in church, but that's okay because I'll probably say a lot worse before it's all over with. As regarding our relationship with politicians, I prayed about this a long time, so I'm not just saying this flippantly. I think the best way for Christians to regard politics is this. Christians ought to regard every politician the same way, as an instrument of God. Every politician, the same way, an instrument of God. Now, we all know this from biblical examples. The Bible says that Cyrus was God's anointed. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was God's chosen. Uh, the Bible says that uh, Pilate and King Herod were God's chosen instruments. So this isn't new. This isn't, you know, 
my own thoughts. This is Bible from cover to cover. And Paul says here that God has appointed these leaders in this state of Rome. Again, Rome is a pretty bad place. Now, there was no such thing as democracy in the day of the Roman Empire. Democracy is a pretty new idea. It was talked about by the Greeks, but it didn't come around until a few hundred years ago. And we know all about that. But don't you think that God is sovereign over that as well, right? So how should we regard every politician as an instrument of God? Now, here's the thing. Certain politicians, you will say, amen, of course they're an instrument of God. I voted for them. But certain politicians, you're gonna say, well, there's no way they're an instrument of God. They're everything against God, and, and maybe they are. But I can't preach to you Romans 13 as honest as I am supposed to without telling you this is true of every politician. This is true of the ones that are the most heinous people on the face of the earth. And this is true of the ones that you think carry a Bible and, and, and are pretty close to what you are. But according to God's word, every politician is an instrument of God. So how, what do we do with that? Here's what I think we should do with that. We should not cheer them nor jeer them. Now I use jeer because it rhymes. <laughs> but you get the point, don't you? We should not ever applause a politician as somebody that we really think is, you know, hey, because they're an instrument of God. God gave them that position. You, 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 you honor them, 1 Peter 2, 17, honor the emperor. You pray for them, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 and 2. Pray for kings, pray for leaders, pray for your leadership and, and on every level. You regard them as God's choice, verse 4, right? For he is God's minister for you. So we shouldn't cheer them. And again, you know, if you cheer them, that's fine. That's your choice. But I'm just telling you biblically and what I believe the Bible teaches, you shouldn't cheer them and you shouldn't cheer them. You know, and, and again, again, some of them you want to cheer and some of them you want to jeer. And, and we maybe want to do both at the same time. But the Bible's, the best way to respond to them is to neither cheer nor jeer, but to honor them and pray for them and regard them as God's servant. And, and here's why I'm so making such a passionate plea about this. We harm our testimonies if we attach ourselves to mere mortals. And we harm our testimonies if we attack mere mortals. This protects us from being detached from God's sovereignty and it keeps our eyes on the same mission, which is to function as best we can within the state that God has put us in to build up his kingdom through love, humility, and service. I know this flies in the face of everything we feel that is normal and natural because this stuff has not been touched in pulpits and churches. And meanwhile, meanwhile, we have taken our cues from other agendas. We must let this text transform us. In another word, we cannot fall for the bait of people and parties. We we will risk turning our heads to things that do not honor Christ or from things that do not honor Christ. We best stand for what Christ stood for, attach ourselves to him. That way we are never compromised by a platform that has policies that we know good and well are not godly or not Christian. So I know, you know, while we're on the subject, I'm sure somebody would say, well, Justin, what about voting? I mean, you know, we're already talking about some uncomfortable stuff. Let's talk about it. How does that fit into this? Every Christian should and has a civil responsibility to vote. 
And every Christian should vote their conscience. But do not be so quick to condemn those who are voting different than you. Because with every mortal we cast our vote for, we are doing so with an awareness that they are imperfect. And ultimately, they are in the hands of God. Do you hear that? With every mortal that we cast our vote for, we are doing so with an awareness that they are all imperfect instruments of God. And regardless of the outcome, we defer to God's rule. Now, here's why I think we should accept this maybe with a little bit less tension than we might be wanting to. Because when Paul says to the Romans that your king is God's minister, you know who he's talking about? He's talking about a dictator, a cold-blooded dictator, a godless pagan dictator. He's talking about a dictator who was years away from enacting widespread full-scale persecution of every Christian of every church. Do you know what this mentality, you know what this attitude got Paul? They cut his head off, right? I mean, we're adults, we can be honest. We can be real about this. You know what this attitude got Peter? They crucified him. You know what this attitude got John? They put him in a pot of oil and boiled it to as hot as it could get and he wouldn't die and they exiled him on an island. Yet I'm hesitant to say they were in the wrong by doing this. Paul says we must see them as God's servant. I I know that's messy, but this world's messy. And it's never gonna be perfect until God's kingdom comes. And you know what I think this is really supposed to make us do? It's supposed to make us realize that there's no circumstance where we put our heels in this earth, that we should always live on the tip of our toes. We should always live aware that this kingdom is passing away. Great king, rotten king, godly king, ungodly king. Don't dare get comfortable because we are here for a purpose that is not about building our kingdom up. Go back to Romans 12. It's about loving each other while we prepare for something better. Again, verse five is the key. Do this for the sake of your conscience with every attitude and action that we choose or dismiss. The question we ask is how does this affect our conscience before God and our witness before others? We should be most concerned. We should be most concerned with the way we respond to our world and the leaders of our world and the way we act. Our number one concern should be, how does this affect my witness as a Christian? How does this affect my testimony? Look at verse six and seven. Look look at how in in the minutia Paul gets. For because of this, you also pay taxes. What? What? Taxes, why are we talking about taxes? For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. So render therefore to all their due, taxes, customs, fear or respect, honor. So what is Paul telling us here? Be a good citizen, 
pay your taxes, pay your bills, uh, respect those who are owed respect, honor those who are owed honor. Paul wants Christians to be the best citizens they can be, better than any other category of people. That we wouldn't look for ways out of our civil obedience or look for ways out of our civil cooperation, but for ways to honor God in all things. Here's the thing. When we become focused on our world and our kingdom and our agenda, we see everything as cutthroat. How can I get the better deal? How can I win? But when we see this is all being preparation for a better place and my entire purpose on this planet is to love people until I'm gone, all of a sudden you realize, well, I guess it doesn't really happen how much money, it doesn't, guess, it doesn't matter how much money I have. It doesn't matter, you know, if I'm winning or not. It matters how I treat people. And if God has given me an opportunity to treat somebody well in a situation, that's what matters most and that's what I should be most passionate about. Now, in Paul's day, people would say, well, I don't need to pay taxes because that money's been used for evil, right? They're using that tax money for bad things. They still do bad things with tax money to this day, don't they? Don't look for loopholes in cooperating with surrounding society, but look for opportunities to honor Christ and bless others. That means pay your taxes, pay your bills, pay your respect, show honor. Our faith is on, it skews us from our civil responsibility, but it makes our place in society all the more important. Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven. So while we're on earth, we are mindful of that. Verse eight says, owe no one anything, as in make sure that you don't leave any bill unpaid or any duty unchecked. Love one another for he who loves the law or loves one another has fulfilled the law. Our participation and our cooperation is an opportunity to love others. It shows people that we aren't selfish. We aren't building our own kingdom. It gives us a chance to say, I'm not worried about clinging to every little bit of power and wealth. My future is in God's hands. While I'm here, my hands are open. And he wraps all this up for us again in verse nine and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covenant. If there, if, if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He takes it right back to the love, doesn't he? Christians, we have something the rest of the world does not have. We have freedom. And in America, we have an even, we have an even greater reality of freedom. Our freedom is not to be used to mimic the world, but to model the world a more excellent way. Galatians 5.3 says that we should use our freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You might not have got a lot out of what I had to say tonight, but have you noticed a theme? Love, serve one another. Paul wraps it up for us, verse 11 through 13. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, in strife or envy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Our eyes are on Jesus. And as we represent Jesus, as we love and serve others, we have no time for sin, no tolerance for sin. And, and to, to, to break down verse 13 through 14, it, it goes from sinning with others to sinning against others. And here's the, here's the resolution. 
We don't sin with others. We don't sin against others. We live a life that is for people by living for Jesus and not ourselves. That should be the summation of our, our that should be the goal of our lives. I'm not gonna sin with somebody, even if they want to, even if I want to. I'm not gonna, I can't sin with you because God says that would be a, a way of not loving you. I'm not gonna sin with you. I'm definitely not gonna sin against you. I'm here to live for Jesus. I'm here to love you and lift you up. Our desire is not for ourselves. Our desire is for Jesus and his kingdom. Our hearts are set on lifting up Jesus and loving one another, letting go of this world, looking forward and preparing for the one to come. So what Paul's, hopefully his goal or his, 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 what he succeeded in this chapter is he's pried us loose from this world and he's, took, he's put our eyes on the main thing. Back to what Romans 12 introduced us to, a life of love a life of sacrifice. Not distracted by the things that we often get worked up about. Focused on the kingdom and the people of God. Church, thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, I pray that we will process uh, this message. Uh, some meals require a little extra chewing, a little more uh, grace and swallowing. I think this subject is one of those. Let's be good students of God's word and let us be good citizens in this world because we are preparing for a greater one. And let's make the most of every opportunity to be a good witness because that's what's gonna matter most when we step into the kingdom of God. And who we bring with us is what we're gonna be most concerned about. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you, Lord, for showing us what you value the most, what you are most passionate about. God, we admit this is not easy for us to accept and for us to follow through with, but we want to be the best citizens we can be. We want to be the best stewards we can be because we want to make the most difference in our world for your glory. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this commandment and we thank you for the way you are leading us and we pray that you might would have your way in our hearts so that we might make a difference in the world for you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. God bless you all.